Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. This is me, Lisa Schlossberg, and this is the podcast that is here to help you heal your relationship with food, eating, weight, body image, diet culture, etc. I wanted to let you know that I have officially started registration and enrollment for my next group coaching program that will launch in January 2022. So if you're listening to this, if this stuff is resonating with you and you're interested in working with me directly and moving through this curriculum that you're going to hear more about, please feel free to email me or go to the website outofthecave.health where you can fill out an application and we can get working together in the new year. And today I'm excited because I want to talk to you about things that I think are extremely important in terms of understanding how you got here and understanding how you're going to get out. Ultimately, I really believe that knowledge is power because through my own journey, it was really collecting a lot of knowledge and psychoeducation that really paved the path for me to find a way to a healthier relationship with food and my body. So that's what I want to do. I don't want to have all of this knowledge in my head. I want to share what I know about the mind-body system that we all have in common with you so that you have the empowerment that to me goes with it. So on the previous episode, we talked about why diets don't work. We talked a little bit about trauma, the ACE study, adverse childhood experiences, the National Weight Control Registry, and all that good stuff. And today, what I want to do is teach a little bit about the brain science of what's going on inside of us. Why does the ACE study actually make sense? And where and how can you find yourself in all of this data and in all of this research? Why is all of this education so important for you? So let's get started. All right, my friend. The first thing that is important for you to know about is brain science. So just a general kind of overview of how your brain operates because very often I find we think we know what's going on in there, but we really, really don't. The first thing that blew my mind the first time I heard it is that we have about 5% access to what's going on in our brain. About 5% of the activity in our brain is conscious to us and the other 95% or so, roughly, is going on without our conscious knowing it. We don't know 95% of what's going on inside of our brains. So that's kind of where we're going to start today. In order to really understand how to heal your mind-body system, you have to have an understanding of what's going on in your mind. And what's going on in your body is two separate things. So when it comes to Brain Science 101, the first thing you want to know is that it really works in a very simple way. That is, we're always striving to meet a balance between, in an overly simplified way, positive emotions and negative emotions. It's that simple, really. Our brain is always striving to meet some equilibrium between positive and negative. So when I say that, it's important to break down what I mean by positive emotions and negative emotions. Because we know here in the world of emotions that 
There is no positive or negative feeling. They're all just feelings and they're all energy and they all have a place and they're all important. But for the sake of understanding brain science, (laughs) you can think of it as positive and negative. So when it comes to positive and negative and how that actually affects us on an everyday basis, well, the negative emotions that we're talking about, quote unquote, is stress. So stress, also known as cortisol, it's a cortisol hormone in your body and in your brain. Stress, let's understand stress, okay? So strip away right now everything you think you know about stress or what stress means to you because we tend to give it kind of a negative connotation or it tends to have a negative connotation because Our relationship with stress culturally and collectively tends to be, I want less of it. (laughs) I don't want to be stressed. So when we kind of just get rid of that and reorient to what stress even is, and again, I think this is important because we're not going to get out of our primal brain, our primal animal brain that is always seeking safety and survival and trying to save our life. We're not going to get out of it and we can't leave it behind. So we do have to know how it works. And it works with stress. Meaning, let's take a really primal example of, let's say you are out in the wild and a lion comes out. (laughs) You, you You see a lion wherever you are. And what happens is in your brain, your eyes see that lion It sends a signal to your brain that you are in life-threatening danger. And so your brain does either fight, flight, or freeze. So that's our stress response. Our nervous system goes from the parasympathetic nervous system to the sympathetic nervous system, which means basically you're on alert. You're getting ready to either fight, flight, or freeze. So the reason I'm sharing this is because I think it's important to understand That when we're in that kind of scenario, the reason that we can fight, flight, or freeze is because of our stress response. So ultimately, we get stressed out because it saves our life. So just knowing that, because we don't want to actually get rid of stress, we just want to have a healthier relationship with it. Now, why is all of this so important for you to know? Well, there is an important distinction between acute stress and chronic stress because we're actually designed as humans to endure high stress in contained periods of time, let's say. So we can tolerate really high stress periods and we're designed to do that. That part's not unhealthy. The problem that we have with stress today is that our stressors are not acute. Our stress is more chronic than it is acute because another important fact about the brain is that your brain doesn't know the difference between stressors. So, like I was saying in our last episode, when you consciously tell yourself that you want to go on a diet, for example, your brain doesn't know that you're not in a famine. So, similarly... When you, for example, hit a red light when you're sitting in traffic and you're running late to work, you can feel the stress rising, but your brain, animal primitive lizard brain, doesn't know that that red light isn't a saber-toothed tiger. It doesn't know. 
all stress to your brain is the same. All cortisol is the same. It's just stress. So this is why it's important to understand the role of stress because again, if we're always seeking balance, if we're always trying to balance out the positive and negative, but all day, every day, we have stress after stress after stress after stress, our brain thinks that it has to be on high alert like a lion is chasing us all day, every day. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the kind of negative emotions are the stressors throughout your day. And you can just even pause this for a second and think about what that means for you. So when you have the example that is as mundane as sitting in traffic and hitting a red light on your way to work, that feels really, quote, normal, right? Like those things happen in our day to day. But now just consider how many of those things happen in your day every day And just consider for a second the effect that that might have on your brain or the brain science behind the system that you are. (laughs) So that's what we're talking about in terms of negative emotions and stress. Now, the other side of things are the positive emotions. So what we call happy chemicals. What are the happy chemicals and how do they work? Well, great question. So there are four main neurotransmitters that are referred to as the happiness cocktail. So when you have all four of these, this is what scientists refer to as the happiness cocktail. That is dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and oxytocin. Very simply put, every time one of these is released in your brain, you feel good, some sort of good. And they all, all four of them have different jobs and play different roles in our brain, make us feel different things. So endorphins, for example, many of us are familiar with endorphins as it relates to exercise. But endorphins, and the reason that they're related to exercise, is because they're actually our body's natural painkiller. So when you engage in exercise and you create some discomfort in your body, your brain releases endorphins as a natural painkiller. Um, oxytocin, the other one, this is what we know as our bonding chemical. So mothers who just had a baby are flooded with oxytocin. When you experience an orgasm, you're experiencing oxytocin, bonding you to another human being. So those are important and they serve a role. But the two that I really want to talk more about today as it relates to your relationship with food are dopamine and serotonin. So The reason that I'm telling you this is because every single time you eat food, every single time you eat food, your brain releases dopamine and serotonin. So two of the four happiness cocktail chemicals are released in your brain every single time you eat food because it activates what's called the mesolimbic or reward pathway in the brain. So what this means for you is that because human beings survive on food, we are literally biologically designed to not only feel happy and rewarded when we eat it, but also to seek out a source of serotonin when our cortisol or stress gets too high. The reason I'm saying that is because if you identify as an emotional eater or a stress eater, you are officially a human being. There is nothing wrong with you. This is a function of the mind-body connection. The same reason that sex feels good 
its motivation to reproduce, is the same reason that food feels good. We need to eat to survive. So we just have to understand that. That is coming from a neurobiological and mind-body trauma-informed place, emotional eating and stress eating is really just a way that your brain knows instinctively to bring down stress and improve mood. That's just what we do because we are designed that way. And another really important thing about all of this is that the other part of your brain, the hippocampus, is what stores our memories. And the reason I'm telling you that is because think about it from a brain perspective. That is, very simply put, if at any point, especially in childhood, if you got stressed out or scared or overwhelmed or emotional and then you ate something and you felt better, you're not necessarily thinking about that consciously, but your brain, thanks to your hippocampus, stores that memory And what that means for you is that the next time your brain gets stressed out or overwhelmed or scared or emotional, whatever it was, there's a memory in there that was created that says, I know how to bring your stress down. Just eat something. And it's not conscious. It's not a conscious thought that you're having and it's not always a conscious decision that you're making. But this is why I think it's also important to just kind of bust the myth of what we call self-sabotage. Because ultimately, if your brain thinks and feels that safety and survival is going to come from food or eating, especially something sugary and tasty because that has a stronger reaction in your brain, if your brain thinks that food is going to save your life, then it makes a lot of sense why we quote unquote self-sabotage. It's not that we're sabotaging our attempt at success. It's that part of our brain feels so unsafe without that substance or without that behavior that we can't seem to survive without it. We literally can't survive without it. And that's, that's why I think it's also important we understand when we're talking about self-sabotage, it's just an invitation for you from this point on to really replace self-sabotage with an understanding that what you're doing is actually self-soothing and it's actually necessary for you to get by in that moment. Now, I want to just tell you a couple stories to really illustrate what I mean. When I first started working as a social worker, when I was getting my master's in social work, I was working one-on-one with someone who lost 130 pounds and then gained it all back, plus some. And when I asked him... How does it feel to have all this weight back on your body? At first, he looked at me the way most people would and said, are you kidding? Having this weight on my body, I'm, I'm angry and tired and lethargic and this sucks. I just gained all the weight back. And then I said to him, well, what are some of the benefits? What are some of the good things about having this weight back on your body? And again, looked at me like the good things. What are the good things about gaining all this weight back? And then he sat and thought about it for a second and said, people really don't mess with you as much. When you're this big, people really don't bother you. People don't mess with you. And so I just reflected back to him that it sounds like what you're talking about is safety and protection. 
And he said, well, yeah, actually, and I have a lot of issues in those areas. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, with being adopted and everything, I've had a lot of issues around safety and protection in my life. And so, again, it's just an example of we tend to think when we lose all the weight and gain it back plus some that we're doing something wrong or that it's our fault and it's self-sabotage. And the truth is, again, if your brain thinks that having 100, 200, 300, 400 extra pounds on your body is safety and protection, your brain designed to protect you and preserve you is going to find a way to put that weight back on your body. And the other story is when I was working as a personal trainer in a gym and I was working with someone who had gained a lot of weight and had basically tried to work with every dietitian or nutritionist he could find in town. And he got to a point where basically all of them were just kind of yelling at him for doing it wrong or for sabotaging his success. And when we first started working together, I asked him, do you know when your weight gain began? Some people don't really know. If you're anything like myself, it just kind of was always true. But he said he knew exactly when his weight gain started and that no one had ever asked him that before. All of the dietitians and nutritionists that he was working with never bothered to even ask about the onset of his weight gain. And he knew very clearly that he started gaining weight rapidly after September 11th when six of his friends passed away. And this was a man that worked for the fire department in New York City. So it's clear, again, to me, that when I'm working with people like this and just all of the people like this that exist around the world, including myself, that we are eating and gaining weight some of the time just from a place of emotional starvation, not physical starvation and trauma and stress and all of those things that we've been talking about over the last few episodes. But it's important to me that you understand yourself and that instead of going down that rabbit hole of shame and blame and guilt and regret and self-loathing and thinking that you have no willpower and thinking you have no discipline, all of that is not true. All of that is a cultural narrative and honestly a lie. This is what's going on here and there's brain science to back it up. So all of this is really what explains, if we go back to the ACE pyramid that we talked about last time, with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences on the bottom, lead to disrupted neurodevelopment, lead to social, emotional, and cognitive impairment. And then on top of that, it's adoption of a health risk behavior. So what that means is, in order to cope with the adverse childhood experiences and the toxic stress as a result and the social, emotional, and cognitive impairment as a result, we pick up, we adopt a health risk behavior. And this is where it could be drinking alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be smoking, gambling, cigarettes. It could also be food and eating, and it can also be dieting, etc. So yes, just like there are health issues that arise from coping with alcohol or using cigarettes to bring our stress down, there are also health issues that arise from using food and eating and gaining weight, and there are also health issues that arise from under eating, using weight loss and dieting as a way to cope. 
But the most important thing that we have to understand is that none of this is by choice. The brain is seeking safety and survival, and this is just the best way it knows how to do that right now. And before we figure out how to get rid of this pattern or how to get rid of this addictive cycle, we have to understand that we're basically just using it to survive right now. And this explains the ACE study findings. This explains why childhood stress and trauma lead to health issues later in life. But really what I think is more important is having a conversation that Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about, that is, we have to understand most people who try most drugs are not addicted to them. And the more important conversation is not why the addiction, The real question is, why the pain? What happened? What happened to you, not what's wrong with you? Again, this idea goes back to Nicole Sachs's concept of the emotional reservoir, that when we have an overflowing emotional reservoir or an overflowing of repressed emotion and suppressed trauma and stress in the body, it tends to overflow into maybe chronic physical pain symptoms, maybe an actual addiction, or maybe a disordered eating relationship with food, or a diagnosable eating disorder. But understanding that all of these are the, the cause, or the effect, not the cause. They are the consequence. They are not the root issue. And what this meant for me was really huge because I started to understand in myself along the way That if food influences our brain chemistry, like every other addictive substance or pleasurable activity, and our brains are always striving to meet an equilibrium of stress and stress relief through literally any means necessary, the question is not, how do I stop eating? The question is, why am I eating in the first place? Why is my cortisol so high? What is the source of the stress? What is the pain that I feel I need to numb? What am I starving for emotionally that I'm filling with food physically? And ultimately, what is the cause to this effect? Because before we fully understand our reaction to stress, we have to understand that this is how stress works. And just again, using myself as an example, this is why things started to really make sense for me. I was able to really put the dots together of my own life and my own story and my own experiences because now it was really clear that when my family went through a serious trauma and I was five years old and I had no way of coping and everyone around me was depressed and working through their own loss and grief, the happy chemicals that I got were from food and eating. And so unlike some of the Felitti interviews that I shared in our last episode, I see this as an illustration of what's true for a lot of people in that there was no perpetrator, there was no abuse, there was no one to blame, and my trauma was no one's fault. But it still affected me, it still traumatized me, and I still had to pay attention to it in order to feel it and heal it. So this isn't just about food, eating, obesity, and weight gain, though. Another extremely important part of this conversation is that the same is true around dieting and weight loss. 
So some of us use food and eating and obesity and weight gain to feel safe and protected. But the other part of it is that we could do the same exact thing with losing weight, dieting, and getting smaller. So again, how does this work? Why does this make sense? Well, think about it. Just run a quick energetic experiment on yourself. And for a second, think about what happens when you set a goal, any goal, it could be anything. Just think about the psychology of what happens. So part of you is like motivated and excited. Maybe part of you is a little bit scared. Maybe I can't reach this goal, but I really want this goal. Whatever, right? You're starting to activate the emotions inside. Now think about you're setting the goal of weight loss. And what that means, the reason that I'm putting it that way is because, like I said, food hits the mesolimbic or reward pathway in the brain. Food and eating can make us feel reward. But you know what also makes us feel reward is reaching a goal or feeling accomplished or feeling like we've done something good or something like that. And so along my own journey of losing a lot of weight really quickly and getting so much praise and so much admiration, I realized at a certain point that what I did by setting the goal of weight loss and by working my way toward it, I was actually creating a new reward system in my brain. So think about that. Like just visualize what it means to wake up every day in a smaller body when your goal is to be smaller and then you look in the mirror and you see a smaller body and then you put on a smaller pair of pants and then you get on the scale and you are at a lower weight and then you go to work and people are complimenting you on how great you look and at work you take out your little Tupperware of egg whites for breakfast and you feel all of the willpower and discipline and you feel so good and if you feel into that It's really just reward, 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 reward. Dopamine, 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 dopamine. And so I realized that for me personally, that for a while what was going on on the physical dimension was that I was, quote, putting myself on a diet. But psychologically, I was creating a new reward system. So that every single time I embodied restriction, and for me what that meant was I would eat a salad but no dressing, or I would have dinner but no dessert, I would feel psychologically reward. And that physically being smaller in my body became feeling better, more worthy, more lovable psychologically. And that now weight loss was my source of happy chemicals and that even though it felt to me at the time like I was dieting, what I really did was create a new addiction. And instead of being really invested or what it looked like on the surface that I just had so much willpower and so much discipline, I really was and felt addicted. And it became really clear because it felt like I, at the time, while I was losing weight and after my weight loss, I was literally like high on life. 
I didn't realize it at the time because it was really all just a distraction from my own feelings and what was really going on inside of me. And we'll talk more about that in a deeper way. But I was just unknowingly shooting up the drug of external validation, praise, and approval. And that's why I want to share that because in all the speeches that I give, it's when I'm talking about this, this slide goes up on the presentation around dieting addiction. And this is where people start like pulling out their phones and taking pictures of it and like nodding their head really adamantly in agreement because I think living in this culture that is just by itself so fat phobic, I think there are so many of us that are living in this way of kind of being in this addictive relationship with weight loss and addictive relationship with dieting. And it's so hard to give up. And part of the reason that we're in that dilemma to begin with is because really we've connected it or associated it in our brain with safety and survival. And that's why, again, I just think it's so important that you know that if you are someone who, for example, really wants to stop dieting, really wants to stop counting points, really wants to stop counting calories, but you just don't know how or you don't know what to do or it causes all this anxiety, that's super valid. That is super valid. If your brain thinks or feels that dieting is safety or survival, which for many of us it has been, then it makes a lot of sense that you can't just stop. It's like any other addiction. You can't just stop. You can't just rip it away from yourself. And that's really, again, valid, fair, normal, human, and appropriate given the brain science. And when I think about this, I think about a client that I worked with as a personal trainer for a while. And when I asked her, how do you feel when you don't eat all day? She said, I feel good successful, accomplished, pleasantly surprised, willpower, I can do it, and strong. So again, if you just feel into that, it's reward, 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 reward. I'm good. Now, when I asked her, how do you feel when you do eat? Gross, disgusted, regret, horrible, awful, guilt, shame. The reason that I'm sharing this with you is because you can hear how at a certain point when we make weight loss our goal, this is what tends to happen. And the problem with that, the issue with that is that if you think about it intuitively, when you came out of the womb, your brain knew instinctively that food equals safety and food equals survival. You eat to survive. Okay. But now, when you set the goal of weight loss and your goal is to eat less or restrict more, this is what starts to happen in the brain. So that eating that makes us feel gross, disgusted, awful, horrible, doesn't feel like safety and survival it actually gets associated with stress and danger. And the other part of this is that starving or not eating all day and that successful, accomplished, good feeling becomes the feeling of stress relief and safety. 
So now your brain is justifiably extremely confused around is food safety and survival or is food threat and danger? Because according to your body, the way that it functions and it's what I call factory settings, it's like OG settings, <laughs> is it knows that food and eating is safety and survival. But when you put yourself on something like a diet and try to get smaller, your brain thinks that food and eating is danger and threat. So you can see, hopefully at this point, why when we try to diet, especially when we try to diet long term, it is a losing battle. There is no way to do this and make it sustainable because it turns out, according to the brain science, our feelings matter. And this is why you and your conscious brain might want to stop dieting all you want, but without the structure, safety, comfort, and control of a diet, your animal brain might think you're going to die. So we have to just see this, both the addictive relationship that we have with food and the addictive relationship that we have with dieting as the solution, not the problem. It's not the problem. But I think the mourning, grieving process is honestly completely necessary if we want to get out of the cycle successfully. If giving up a diet means losing your sense of safety or comfort or control, it's important for us to know that that actually, for very good reason, might be really hard. So just being really gentle with yourself and really understanding and empathetic that you are a human being who has lived a whole life. You've collected some stress and trauma and emotion and your way of coping with it was by eating or by not eating. And that's all very valid. You are finding the solution the best way that you could at the time. And now you're learning. You're learning what to do next. Now, one thing that I always, always want to include when I share that, the, the story about the client who says eating feels really gross and awful and not eating feels really great. Well, I think it's important to just share that this client was around 300 pounds. And the only reason that that's important to me is because very often we assume that, oh, well, if someone feels really good about not eating and feels really bad about eating, that they must be really thin. That's probably how they move through food and eating on a daily basis, and they must be in a smaller body because of that. And the truth is, for many, many, many of us, that is not at all how this works. So I want to, again, just kind of bust the myth of bigger people in larger bodies are the ones struggling with binge eating and people in smaller bodies are the ones struggling with anorexia or restriction because we just need to be really clear that one of those is a body size or a body type. So whether you're in a bigger body or a smaller body, whether it's fat or thin, that is body size. And whether we are under eating or overeating is a behavior. So you can have someone who is what they will call atypical anorexia in a bigger body. And you can also have people who are very thin but really struggle with overeating or binge eating. And that's just so important because, again, for myself, 
I was closer to anorexic at 300 pounds than anything. And I just, it's so important that if you, especially if you're someone who's listening to this, or, or, especially if you are any kind of medical professional or any kind of, any kind of professional that works in health and wellness, it is so, so, so important that we just open up our eyes to really sitting with each individual and not making assumptions about what people are struggling with or not based on their size and what they look like. That is so important. (laughs) And the last thing that I want to share about all of this is what I call the emotional eating spectrum. And first things first, when I'm talking about emotional eating, I'm talking about overeating, undereating, mindless eating, stress eating, compulsive eating, compulsive dieting, compulsive weight loss, weight gain, all of it, all of it, all of it, okay? So that's just to be clear. When I'm talking about emotional eating, at this point, it's probably understandable why I'm not just talking about overeating and weight gain. I'm talking about the entire spectrum and all of the quote, disordered manifestations of a relationship with food, okay? So when I talk about the emotional eating spectrum, I imagine it as if on one side, one extreme of the spectrum, we have the eat to live people. So there's basically no emotional charge around food. And for those of you who are wondering, who are these people and how is it possible that there is no emotional charge around food? What I can promise you is that their emotional charge is around something else. It's not that we only struggle with food because something's wrong with us. It's, again, just the same as asking, why is it that some people who drink alcohol are not addicted to alcohol? It's, we're all different. Bio-individuality. But so, on some one side of the spectrum, we have the eat-to-live people. On the other side of the spectrum, we have those with a highly, intensely, and sometimes dangerously emotional relationship with food. And that's what we call eating disorders. But you don't have to have an eating disorder in order to have a stressed out, emotionally draining, confusing, frustrating relationship with food, just like you don't need to be clinically diagnosed with depression in order to feel sadness. The research actually shows that more people exhibit disordered eating than eating disorders, which means that more people have less extreme or less frequent symptoms of anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, etc., than those who are diagnosed with disorders. And what that means is that in the United States alone, there are more than 30 million people who are struggling without a diagnosis or a treatment plan. There are more than 30 million Americans alone who are struggling with quote-unquote disordered eating, not eating disorders. And that's why I want to make this point because we tend with the mental health system as it exists today to think that some people have disorders and some don't. And it's just that black and white and it's just that simple. But really what the ACE study is showing us is that it doesn't work that way. And I highly recommend Dr. Gabor Mate's TED Talk on YouTube 
But he shares this point about addiction that I'm making about emotional eating and a relationship with food that is, this is not an us versus them issue. It's not like some people struggle and some people just don't. And so if you're wondering how you ended up where you are, why it feels like maybe you're in this gray area where you've been struggling around food and eating or you've been battling your weight for years, but you don't have a disorder or you don't feel sick enough to get treatment, I want you to know that it's valid. Everything that you've experienced and everything that you're feeling and everything that you're struggling with is so valid Because obviously, at this point, I hope, it should be clear that we all have to eat food every day. We're all in bodies. And because of the mind-body connection and brain science, our emotions are connected to our relationship with food. So we're all on the spectrum somewhere. And it's valid wherever you are. Whatever your experience has been with this, it actually makes all the sense in the world. And to me, the brain science is and has always been so important to understand because it really means when you let this sink in and you accept that this is the truth of how this works, it really means that it's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not bad for being where we are. And before we move into what to do about all of it, it is really important that we release our attachment to being at fault. It tends to provide a sense of control and agency to believe that it's all our fault and we did something wrong. We even tend ironically to fight for it to be our fault because then it means that it was something that we had control over and it's easier to turn it inward and blame ourselves than it is to say this is out of our hands in some ways. But we do really, I think, have to move through that kind of just acceptance that this isn't our fault and we weren't doing anything wrong. So having said that, I think it's important to clarify that when we talk about what to do about all of this, because that's where these episodes are going to start to go, is what do we do about all of this? It makes sense that we're here, but now what? Well, I think we have to really clarify what the end goal is. So the reason that I say we have to release feeling like it's in our control or that we have personally done something wrong or that it's a reflection of our own character or something like that is because very often, I think, when we talk about what we want in our relationship with food, where do we want to go? What is the end goal? It's always to, or not always, it's very often to just be done. I just want to be done with this already. I'm so sick of struggling and it feels so unfair and it's so overwhelming and I just want this to be over. I just want to get out of it. And we tend to also go on a diet from that perspective, from that energy of this will be it. This will solve the problem. This will make sure that it's over. So here's some things I want to clarify about all that from a perspective of the brain science, because I think you deserve to know that your thoughts have an effect on your reality. And here's four things that are always going to be true. One, you live in a body. Two, you eat food every day. 
Three, you feel feelings. There's no way out of that as a human. And four, your feelings are connected to your relationship with food as per the brain science. So I say this because we're not getting out of it. You're not getting out of it. We can't get rid of the body that needs to eat or the brain that will be affected by the food that we choose to eat. We also can't separate ourselves from the culture within which we live. So I say this because the feeling that you might have is really valid. Of course you want to get out of this. It has been unfair and it has been overwhelming and it has been stressful. And of course it feels like this sucks and it's bullshit. You are valid in that experience and that feeling is so real and true and valid. But here is what I want to teach you about this because every thought you're like Nicole Sachs told us, your brain hears your conscious input. And so here's what you want to consider. And I learned this working with Nicole Sachs around chronic pain. That is every time you tell your brain that you want to get out of the situation that you're in, again, your brain doesn't know the difference between you wanting to get out of a job or get out of a relationship or get out of a house or get out of a life-threatening, dangerous lion attack. It doesn't know the difference. So when you're telling yourself that you have to get out of your body as it exists right now, or you need your relationship with food to change, and you're responding from a place of attachment and fear, and I need this to change and I need this to be different, all your brain knows or thinks is that right now you are in life-threatening danger and something really bad is threatening your survival. And so as a result of that, because your brain is wired to protect you and save your life, you may feel the need to go back to those health risk behaviors that you're trying to give up. So for example, if you are saying, I need my body to be different, I need my body to change, no really, I really need it to change, I need it to be different, your brain again is going to say, oh, okay, so got it. Got the message that we are in danger. And what I need to do as your body to protect you is store all of the fat on your body to keep you safe. And you just see how if we're responding to the relationship with food or to our body from a place of fear and needing it to be different, it will never sustainably be different. So what do we actually do? Well, the first thing is to just accept what is. We use these substances as behaviors and behaviors as safety. A mentor of mine once invited me to consider them as life jackets. So feel free to steal that visual if it resonates. But just understanding that the only time you're doing or engaging in these behaviors or substances is when you feel like you're drowning or a part of you feels like you're drowning, you're using these as a way to stay afloat and just stay alive. And that's okay. So if you're concerned that you keep using them, just remember that the real question is why do you feel like you're sinking in the first place? And so if your goal is to just be done with this or just get out of this, this whole situation around food and eating and the whole diet culture and you just want to remove yourself completely, this is a loving invitation for you to consider that there is a better neurobiologically informed way to approach how you perceive your end goal. And that is 
instead of thinking of how do you get out of your body and how do you get out of your relationship with food, I invite you to consider what it would be like to just think about having a different relationship with it. I like to think of this as going from a battle with food to a dance with food. Because then, at least, you're keeping yourself in reality. You're keeping yourself in the truth. That is, you're not getting out of your body and you're not going to get out of the responsibility of feeding yourself for the rest of your life. So at least, again, you're telling the truth. You're meeting yourself where you are and it's valid that you don't want to deal with any of this or that it feels unfair that you've had to deal with this or that you've struggled with this. And at the same time, it's not doing you any favors to keep trying to get out. Because over and over and over again, the reason that diets have never worked, not only because of the brain science, but from this perspective of every time you feel like you've got a solution because then you'll be done, right? I'll just go back on this diet and then it'll be done. I'll just do this one more time and then it'll be over. Every time you set yourself up to think of yourself and your body and your relationship with food as temporary, you're not telling the truth. It's not that you're going to go on a diet or follow a plan for a few days, weeks, months, even years, and then you'll be done. There is no done. So just meeting yourself there in that reality, letting yourself feel whatever kind of emotional reaction that brings up, and just letting it be true, letting it be valid and letting it be okay, because it is. So the last note here is that ultimately this is not your fault and it is your responsibility. And that's another important point that I'll just always keep coming back to because the truth is it's not your fault. You didn't choose this, you didn't create this. And at the same time, it is your responsibility. Like any healing work, you are the only one that can heal it. You are the only one that can bring yourself back to yourself. So all of this to say, first, we have to really understand and accept that all manifestations of a disordered relationship with food is the, really the solution to the problem. And ultimately, the way to heal it, solve it, resolve it is to come back home to ourselves. It's not easy to navigate, but it is fairly simple in concept. We have to come back home to ourselves, regulate emotions enough so that we are free to listen to hungry and full. And so like you've heard me say, we can't solve an emotional problem with a physical solution. But a lot of the way out is finding the emotional solutions to the emotional problems. So learning how to feel and cope, tolerate discomfort and stress. And then the other part of it is the physical solutions to the physical problems. So eating food when you're hungry, not eating food when you're not hungry, etc. So we'll talk about how to do this. And a lot of people are going to come on and share their tips and tricks and suggestions and resources and all of the things. But again, I hope it's clear to you at this point that it is of utmost important to me that before we start talking about where do we go from here, it's primarily important that we understand we're not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with us. We are not bad for having the struggle that we have. All of our feelings and experiences are valid. And really, ultimately, what we're doing is using the relationship with food 
and whatever manifestations and disordered parts that it has right now is just a way to come back home to ourselves, understand ourselves, and reconnect, reconnect to us so that we no longer have to live a life of giving our power away to the diet industry and diet culture and anyone else for that matter. So I hope this all made sense. I hope this was educational and informative for you. Um, I am not the biggest brain science nerd in the world, but I do love when learning all of the science translates to you being nicer to yourself. <laughs> so that is, that is the intention here, is really just start to see, see yourself from a human perspective, not a body perspective. Having said all of that, I fully invite all of your questions, all of your requests, anything that's on your mind into my email inbox, lisa at lisaschlossberg.com. Please also find me on Instagram, lisa.schlossberg. And most importantly, because I'm really excited about it, the new membership on my website that allows us to hang out together twice a month on a live call where you can get your questions answered and receive some direct coaching from me, as well as some resources, homework assignments, journal prompts, meditations, lots of goodies that will be added into there, outofthecave.health. Join the community. If you have any questions or need anything from me, please don't ever hesitate to reach out to me directly. And if you have any questions at all about my group program, if you want to talk to me more one-on-one about the 14-week program coming out in January, please just email me, lisa at lisaschlossberg.com. All right. Have a great week. I love you. Goodbye.